Hello and welcome to A Slice of Bread and Butter brought to you by the charity The Bread and Butter Think. I'm Mark and one of the charity's founders and chief exec. And I'm Fiona. I'm also one of the Bread and Butter Think team. We thought that we'd do something a little bit different this week. Uh, we spent the past few episodes chatting with our members and volunteers about what TBBT means to them and um, why they use our affordable food service. But now I think it's time to refocus the spotlight. <laughs> you do, do you? Yes, I do. Very much. On to you. Every week you do the intro. I'm Mark and I'm one of the founders um, and chief exec. Yeah. So I thought this episode, we could dig into that a bit more and talk a bit about uh, you and what brought the bread and butter thing into existence. Okay. Where do you want to start? Well, I'd say that the beginning is traditional. But before we do, let's have just a quick reminder about what is the bread and butter thing. Okay, the Bread and Butter Think is an affordable food club, taking surplus food into low-income communities to enable them to feed their families healthy, nutritious food and save some money on the weekly budget. And from that starting point, we can help create change in those communities from better health outcomes to new friendships and reducing isolation. Great. So what inspired you and your co-founder, Jane, to create it? (laughs) <laughs> the big vision. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> the big vision, if you want to call it. <laughs> well, it was all about fairness. I like fairness, and so does Jane. And we think it's really unfair that just because of where somebody's born in the UK, they should have a radically different access to food. You can obviously extrapolate that globally, but I'm only thinking in the UK at the moment. So just because you're born in one of the more challenged areas of the UK should not be a reason why you can't actually get everything for the same price as you could if you're in a more affluent area. Well, agreed. There's a sort of inherent logic in that. It sort of seems obvious that if we go to a particular high street retailer, you should be able to pay the same amount for a bag of carrots and that we should have access to those carrots in the first place. But that it doesn't feel like that should be some wild utopian dream. So why is it Uh, Do you think that there aren't supermarkets and shops with affordable food in those areas? I I think it's really easy. It's just because commercially that footfall doesn't make it pay. So you end up with these things called poverty premiums. So how would you define a poverty premium? It simply means that you have to pay more because of certain circumstances in your life. And and that can be geographical. And it can be as simple as the difference between the price of a bag of carrots or it can be because there isn't a supermarket near you and you have to walk or get a taxi or a bus to be able to get to buy affordable food. And that means that you have to add a premium onto whatever your food bill is. And that, well, it's just not right. Okay, so your background is in accountancy and business management. So what brought you to the idea of creating an affordable food charity? Ah, well, it's because I know food. I've stopped food going to waste and being redistributed for over 20 years now. My dad was a frozen food house sailor, so I, I've known the food industry pretty much all my life. And as food really is one of the absolute essentials, literally the bread and butter, this seemed like a good place to start. So is that where the name came from? Um, sort of. It's something my dad used to say a lot, all about different things. He would say that he had to have things in his life that were the bread and butter thing. So it was pretty common phrase in my childhood and, uh, and and that's what I think about the bread and butter thing is all about I, I, it's a way of delivering everyday essentials okay so but how the leap to actually setting up in my management consultancy days uh, one of my clients was a commercial surplus food company and I ended up running it 
So during that time, I saw how much food was going to waste and it gave me a really good understanding of the key social and environmental issues around that. As part of that role, I also brought the first social supermarket into the UK. So I had a real education in the effects that you can have beyond the calories and the savings by also combining the support services, volunteering and community aspects. So talk a bit about surplus food. Why does it happen in the first place? Loads of reasons, but most of the time, I I think we can probably drill it down to a really simple thing called choice. We all like to choose. So it's all very well that people say we should have wonky veg in the supermarket. Some people will pick up the wonky carrots as opposed to the beautifully straight orange carrot. But that's not all of us. And the majority of us will always go to the back of the shelf to pick the longest dates as well. That's being advised at the moment as one of the money-saving tips in cost of living. So as consumers, we're very selfish in this and that creates waste. We constantly create variety as well. So retailers try to interest us in new things. So then we've got people in the food industry that are trying to guess what that choice is and that creates even more waste. And that's before all sorts of technical stuff that goes wrong in food production, like the packaging is wrong or there's a missing ingredient or something like that. All of these things add up, but essentially it really does come down to the way we culturally engage with food. We no longer look at local or seasonal produce. We expect cucumbers 52 weeks of the year. That creates problems that create waste. And what's even worse is when we get it home, then we throw 7 million tons of it in the bin every year. People often point the finger at industry and say it's the industry's fault. But data from RAP shows that 3 million tons of food is wasted in industry every year. But if you go back 10 years, that was 7 million tons. So you can see that the food industry are actually working on it, even if they still have a way to go. Well, it does feel like the food industry, you know, it's sort of at the forefront of industry minds right now. Because in recent weeks, we've seen a whole series of announcements from a number of supermarkets taking best before dates off their products, I think, to try and make that cultural shift around buying food. Yeah, absolutely. And And I hope that will spark genuine change amongst consumers. I've yet to find anyone in the food industry who is happy to see their food go to waste. People want to feed people first. got to be a good thing especially at the moment when there are so many people who need food support right now Um, and we've talked a lot over the last few episodes about how the cost of living crisis is really hurting a lot of our members Um, and that was before august's new price cap announcement Um, you know for most of our members the autumn and winter is looking genuinely terrifying Um, but how is the cost of living affecting tbbt it's been really complicated for a couple of years now uh, we've got through the worst of COVID, which is an achievement in itself. And I'm, I am really proud of the fact that we didn't miss a single delivery throughout 2020 or 2021. Our food suppliers, staff and volunteer teams really came through for everyone. But now we've got to 2022 and the cost of living crisis is hitting us in different ways. We're mobile, for example. So we have 14 vans to fuel every day, not just delivering food to go out to the hubs, but collecting it from factories and farms too. We've got two warehouses and they need energy for the fridges and freezers. All of our costs are rising too, which means that we're having to look at new ways to make sure that we can make the books balance. Meanwhile, 
demand on our food scheme is rising. We've got 1,700 new people joining up every month. This time last year, it was 700. Well, so the cost of living crisis is really throwing down the gauntlet in its challenges. So what are your big priorities for what the bread and butter thing does next? Mm. So if COVID taught us anything, it's, it's about how vital TBBT is to our members' lives. And that's a responsibility that we don't take lightly. We know there's a growing demand for our work across the country. So our big ambition is to keep growing and to take TBBT national. We're working with funders at the moment to explore options. And we're also working with new regional partners. And by the end of the year, we will have at least one, maybe two further warehouses in operation, which can serve another two regions. Just can't say where they are yet. Oh, you big tease. <laughs> and then there will be more to come in 2023 and beyond. So what do you think makes the bread and butter thing different to like other food charities? I think the biggest thing that sets us apart is our relationship with the food industry. Organisations like Morrison's, who literally have been there since day one, they sponsored our first van. Morrison's are the one, one of the biggest food manufacturers in the UK, and that gives them a unique perspective because they actually look in detail at what they do from farm to fork. They know how much surplus they're creating, and they're really open to ideas about how to redistribute it. I really like their ethos too, because the team there are so... They're just so understated. They just crack on and get it done. They don't shout about it. I think I think they've been amazing, not only with partnering with us and collaborating, but also with listening as well. And when we've had suggestions about what we want to do or how we want to approach things, they've been really open to that. Or even people like the team at Worldwide Fruit. We've just won the Grocer Gold Waste Not One Award for our work with them because we worked collaboratively to find a solution to getting their surplus out to organisations like us. And it was really simple. How simple? <laughs> okay, this simple. The reason they weren't redistributing fully before is that they had to hire fruit trays that needed to be accounted for. And they didn't have the staff capacity to take it out of the trays and put it in boxes because that would add labour and material costs and making it uneconomic to redistribute. So we came along and just said, well, it's really easy, then we'll just take the trays. We'll talk to the tray people. So now the trays are hired to us and we're responsible for returning them. But because we supply directly to consumers, would be to see, and because we never let those trays out of our sight, we could keep them in our eco- ecosystem. And that was it really easy to control. Can I just say, I don't mean to be rude, but the logistics of food trays has to be one of the dullest possible reasons for food or surplus. <laughs> I know, right. But that, 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 that's the reality. And, and it's not uncommon. And it unlocked hundreds of tons of fruit almost overnight. It's never complicated when you stand back and look at it. Most barriers are simple to address. And we've had over 275 tonnes of fruit since we started with last summer with WWF. That's one and a half million pieces of fruit. And, and it's a lot of crumble. <laughs> it's that kind of partnership that sets us apart from other charities, though, Fiona. We, we try to be really solutions focused and build our own supply. So as TBBT grows... What's the most important thing about it that you don't want to change? Hmm. Okay. I I think it's got to be our relationship with our members and volunteers. Each hub genuinely feels like a family and we really strive to ensure that our members and volunteers drive and influence the work we do. So we, we often survey our members to find out how we're doing, but also what's important to them so that we can tailor support and other partnerships. And we 
agitate for change. And this podcast is part of that. We want our members' voices to be heard, for their voices to have impact, whether that's at a local, regional or national level. The information they share with us really helps us build a grassroots picture of big issues facing people in low-income communities. That's not just about access to food. At the moment, it's very much about energy and fuel costs, but also about access to free school meals, the digitization of healthy start vouchers, digital exclusion, and so on. And by working with our members, it's those bigger, more systemic issues that we can raise awareness and campaign for. So is there anything sort of specific that you would want to see change on now? Yeah, I think I'd definitely like to see digital exclusion pushed higher up the agenda. It is a real barrier for people to get support, especially now when digital solutions are the first response for so many organisations. We all know how hard it is to talk to a real person. If you're trying to sort out a problem with a bill or how frustrating it is dealing with an online bot without... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, but I don't like bots. It's just automated answers. The removal of face-to-face support means that many people are left not being able to access the benefits or help that they need and are entitled to. 24% of our members don't have broadband at home or are reliant on using data on their phones. More importantly though, 38% of our members don't feel confident using the internet. It's another kind of poverty premium. It's not simply about access. Nobody, not the services that have transitioned to digital nor the tech sector, have put in any sort of support to help people access the services online. And throughout the series so far, we've talked about other big issues such as cost of prepayment meters and higher tariffs, staying care and the level of financial support for people, especially during the cost of living crisis. And everybody's talked about the access to healthy food and how it affects their diet and their diet diversity. Everybody has definitely mentioned some of the new food they've tried. <laughs> uh, that's, you know, a daikon or an machine or even cereal. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And the idea behind the TBBT model originally was that we would operate in a very similar way to a veg box scheme. We wanted it to be able to cover three core categories, covered goods, fridge goods and fruit and veg. But in the same way as a veg box, it's a push model. You get what you're given. This gives everyone an equitable share of food in the bag so that everybody on the same day gets a relatively straightforward or similar offer. Our members recognise that there'll be new foods, including some they don't particularly want to like, but they swap. They swap ideas or they swap food with someone. So you're back to your original idea of fairness. Yeah. But instead of home delivery, you've created the idea of, you know, delivering to community centres. Well, the community centres are absolutely critical in the, in the middle of all this. They're in all kinds of places, churches, schools, community centres, scout huts. My favourite's the adventure playgrounds. <laughs> with the very friendly pigs, yeah. The important bit is finding places with the right culture, run by really positive people that are just trying to do the right thing for the community surrounding them and by being part of that community. We thought if you can actually get the food to them and be able to attract people in for that food, then not only are we giving hyper-local access to this food, but we're creating footfall for the local projects as well so that they're actually seeing more of their community too. 
And once you start to do that, you can get onto the next level and make it more interesting. Again, to say, okay, what about all the other issues surrounding this community? What other services and support can we bring in? Like citizens' advice or welfare rights or, or, or public health, whatever it is. Some hubs already have some support services in place, but we'll work with them to fill in the gaps and see if we can find other services to come in as well. We talk to people and we build a dialogue and it grows together. We don't have all the answers, but we learn. Is that idea of community something that you've always felt was important? Yeah. I I, I grew up on a council estate in Preston, which came with its own sense of community and neighbours knowing each other. So I I really recognise the strength in that and, and the role of our hubs can play in combating isolation and being a catalyst for other community action. And also for those communities to be involved in the work we do. Our volunteers own the project in each location. It's something they're really invested in and they're they're proud of it. They can see the impact it has locally for their families, friends and neighbours struggling with food insecurity. Are you ever surprised by how the bread and butter thing has taken off? (laughs) Uh, I'm going to say yes and no. Okay, fair, fair. (laughs) I think we always knew that there was a need for our kind of two-tier approach to food insecurity and for the need to think beyond food banks as a solution. Food banks are very necessary as a resource for people living in crisis of food insecurity. And that's about 4% of the population. But then there's another further 21% who are routinely food insecure. They're skipping meals or limited diets or just struggling to get access to good quality food. What surprised me most about this 21% is how many of them are actually in work. Over half of our members are employed in some shape or form. So these are the people that are on zero hours contracts or short term contracts or minimum wage. So lots of our members are actually NHS staff or teaching assistants, cleaners, as well as people that are on long term benefits for a multitude of reasons. Really, our work is about prevention. We are trying to support people so that they can afford to eat well and stretch the budget so they don't have to fall into financial crisis. Because if there isn't something like bread and butter or another food club or pantry type thing in the region, what do they do? And obviously that cohort is growing right now. How are you feeling about sort of the next phase of the bread and butter thing? This is going to sound weird, but I'm super excited. It feels weird to say that simply because we're actually putting in a model of support. So I shouldn't be necessarily excited about putting a model of support in, but we already have another three regions identified and we're working with some new funders. So there's lots to be excited about, but in all honesty, I'm feeling a bit daunted too. I think we all are. <laughs> yeah, everybody is. Every TBBT and across the food sector, the cost of living crisis is much more extreme than we originally envisioned. And it, it, it's going to be really tough for families. And I, and I think we're ready for it. But that doesn't mean that it's not going to be hard. What would you say that you are most proud of so far? Oh, I'm going to get mushy. It's got to be, <laughs> it's got to be the team or staff and volunteer team and the commitment they show every day is absolutely jaw-dropping. I feel like a soppy dad and get a bit choked whenever I think about it. That's so lovely. (laughs) (laughs) It's true, it's true. Okay, so to finish, I've got five quick-fire questions for you. Okay. What food would you most want to receive in a TBBT bag? Oh, good one. Uh, I'd say crunchy nut cornflakes because usually I'm not allowed them at home. Oh, okay, same. Um, What would you be trading in the queue? 
definitely beetroot. If a vegetable was ever evil, it was beetroot. Okay. <laughs> okay, we'll have to take that away and deconstruct that elsewhere. Um, what is your top tip for avoiding food waste at home? Okay, so plan your meals, not just your shopping. So know what you're going to eat when. So it's not just about what you're going to buy, but also when you're going to eat it. I know it can be dull, but this is what I mean about choice. It's a big waster. So who would be at your fantasy dinner party? This will never come off. (laughs) However, (laughs) I would love to have dinner with this following combination. Stephen Fry, because he will always lead the conversation. John Lydon, because he will always kind of give a a difficult angle to the conversation. Mariella Frostrop, because she'll try and manage the two. And then David Lynch, because he's just weird. (laughs) (laughs) Left field, late edition there. And if you weren't running the bread and butter thing, what would you be doing instead? I don't know. I, I, I think something with corporates to remind them that there is an S in ESG. My chair of trustees thinks I would make a really good insultant. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, excellent answers. Thanks. So, Mark, Hmm? that is a wrap. Oh, wow. As they say in other industries. The first series of Bread and Butter Things in the Can, or should I say the bread bin? Oh, really? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but we should do more, right? Yeah, so I was thinking that. So if anyone has suggestions about who we could chat to next, or if there's something about our work that you'd like to know more about, then please uh, drop us a line at podcast at breadandbutterthing.org. If you've missed any of the series, do have a listen back to our previous episodes. Kelvin, Sandra, Leah, Arndt, Elaine and Pauline all have insightful reflections on their experiences of TBBT framed against the cost of living crisis. Those stories are definitely worth hearing. Yeah, they definitely are, even if our wittering is not. Agreed. And if you'd like to keep in touch with the bread and butter thing um, and what we're getting up to and where those new regions might be, <laughs> then you can find us at Team TBBT on Instagram and Twitter or on LinkedIn or we're online at breadandbutterthing.org. Finally, and most importantly, we're always open to new members at all of our hubs. So if you or someone you know would benefit from our affordable food scheme, you can find your nearest hub on the join us pages of the website and look out for new hubs coming soon in the next few months. And if you have any feedback or thoughts on the podcast, you can get in touch by email at podcast at breadandbutterthing.org. And please do all those things that podcasts ask you to do. Like us, subscribe, leave us a review, share us with your friends and say nice things about us on social. Oh, and tell your mum. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll be back for more soon. Yep. Bye.